following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. We've been talking about our longings. We started this Advent series on how Christ coming into the world meets our deepest and most profound longings. If you're uh, new here, a guest or visitor, over on the table if you leave, uh, there are some Reflections and an Advent devotional for you to take with you. It's on the website as well if you'd rather have an electronic form. If you haven't picked one up, if you're here regularly, the staff and some members of the church have put that together for you just to guide and direct your thoughts and your your times uh, over this season of Advent. When Christ came, and it says that the Word became flesh and we beheld His glory, Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That Christ came into the world. And in his coming, he accomplished so many things. It's impossible uh, to take the advent or the incarnation of Jesus Christ uh, and understand it uh, alone. It's not a mutually exclusive uh, thought uh, away from his life, his death, and his resurrection, and then ascension uh, to heaven. But we're focusing on this, but it's understood in light of the overall. But why and how did his coming meet our deepest longings? Well, the first thing we would need to say, and we began to explain it last week, was that we were designed and developed with longings. We had needs, we had longings and desires, that in the garden, in our uh, first state with Adam and Eve, in that before the fall time, that they were fully met. The desire and the need and the longing to be loved was met perfectly by God. Uh, And then it allowed them, because this relationship with God, the Father, uh, had not been broken, and the Trinity had not been broken, then Adam and Eve were able to be with one another. And it says there was no shame, there was no guilt, there was no brokenness or hiding there. And so that longing for love was met perfectly and fully. The longing to be ruled, the longing to have one who governed over them. Uh, It says that God was in the garden and he cared for them. And we'll look at just a second, and they were at rest in the garden. They were at peace. They didn't fear for anything. There was one who ruled them. And he gave them standards by which to live. You can go and do all of these things, but of one tree you you can't eat of. There were rules, and it was good for them to be ruled. They were designed to be ruled. (coughs) They were designed for truth. We were designed for truth. Uh, We were designed in all of these ways with wanting health and and wholeness and eventually of home. But when the fall came, those things were broken. And now we began as humanity to look around and to find our longings met in other things. We, we found them met, or to try to have them met, in things that are of created order versus that of the creator. And what we're looking at this morning is the, the need that we have, the longing that we have to be ruled. And that may seem odd to you, because deep down somewhere uh, in your um, philosophy class, in your humanities, in undergraduate uh, studies, in your philosophy classes, or in high school, you studied that man is an autonomous being with a free will, and that freedom comes when he answers to no one. He is the chief end of himself, and that that true enlightenment comes when you can escape all of the trappings of any kind of authority over you, and you can be one and at peace. Or if you're a good old-fashioned American, democracy, a rule of the people, by the people, for the people. 
And if you don't like the rule of law, you can change it by protest, uh, by revolution. You can stand up and work through uh, appropriate means or means of even uh, of violence to come and, and to change the rule uh, over you if you so determine. Interesting, John Guest, who some of you know, John uh, Guest was a British uh, writer and pastor and theologian. He had come to America many years ago and visited a Revolutionary War. It's a story told that he told and that was retold uh, by Tim Keller in a sermon. And then he went and saw a, a picture of a, of a banner that was uh, over a tavern in Philadelphia in the time of the Revolution. And the banner over the tavern said, we will be ruled by no man. And John Guest said, I'm not in Britain anymore. Democracy is such a, an American idea. And one other writer put it this way, C.S. Lewis, uh, in a treatment on democracy, he wrote a little paper on it. He said, democracy isn't your food. It, it's not going to satisfy you. It, it's not the end uh, of it all. To be ruled is the end of it all. And it's interesting that here we are, we Americans, we are pushing and putting out from us into all of the world a system of doctrine, a system of government uh, that basically says you don't have to be ultimately ruled. You get to determine how you're ruled. And we wonder why in America especially we have a difficult time understanding Jesus as a king and Jesus as a, a sovereign who basically says, what I say goes and what I do I do without uh, the consensus of the people. He is not driven by constituents. He is not driven by opinion polls. Uh, he does not have chiefs of staff who tell him what to do and how to do it. He is sovereign. And what he says, we are to listen and obey. What comes to us, we are to accept from his hand. And we wrestle with that deep and profoundly within our humanity. And we don't like to be ruled. We don't like rules at all. Every parent sees that in the life of a child. And I'll talk in a second where the child learns that by the way, parents. They learn it really well from parents who don't like rules either. And grandparents who are not off the hook either. That. Because guess what your children complain of is when they drop off the grandchildren in your house, you break all the rules and then send the kids back for them to deal with. So children are learning rules are arbitrary. Everything's arbitrary, and we get to decide. So, what do we do about this longing to be ruled? I enjoy movies, and the Avengers movie that came out in 2012 has this dark figure, Loki, who is the stepbrother of Thor. Loki is the god of mischief in Norse mythology. And he comes down to Earth, and he's going to rule the Earth. <laughs> And in an engagement with humanity, he stands and he says, kneel before me. I said, kneel. Is not this simpler? Is this not your natural state? It's the unspoken truth of humanity that you crave subjugation. That bright lure of freedom diminishes your life's joy in a mad scramble for power, for identity. You were made to be ruled. In the end, you will always kneel. And an old German man in the crowd stood up and said, Not to men like you. And Loki rebutted, There are no men like me. 
And the old man said, there will always be men like you. Fascinating. How in the middle of this Hollywood movie, in the middle of it, is a, a divine truth spoken by an evil character. You were designed to be ruled. At the end of the day, you will always bend your knee to someone or something. And the old man stands up and goes, but not to men like you. Not to men like you. So, who will we bend the knee to? Or better, who should we bend the knee to? If not to men like Loki, or not to men uh, and women who have sat on thrones throughout all of history, not to the dictators who demand that they are gods, uh, not to those people, then who should we, who were we designed to bend the knee to? Who is it that we should be ruled by? And then what does that rule look like? And what are the benefits to us within that rule? And so we're going to look this morning at Revelation chapter 5, which seems maybe an odd place to go when we're discussing Advent. But remember what I said. You can never take the birth narratives of Christ, the incarnation of Christ, and understand them independent of all of the scheme of history and all of the scheme of Christ's life. And so we're going to look at Revelation of John's vision in the heaven in Revelation chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles... Listen and follow along. This is God's very word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would now come and you would speak by the power of your Holy Spirit through your word. And that we would know that it is word, it is the word of a divine sovereign. And we would humble ourselves and that we would listen and that you would apply it in our hearts. As we pray. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard from the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. 
And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is God's word. May he add his blessing to the meeting and hearing of it. Oh, what a scene that had to be. What a scene that is. You can imagine John there, and he looks, and there's this mighty angel who's holding a scroll. And it's the scroll of life. And he says, there's no one created in heaven or in earth who can open the scroll and break its seals. John knew what that meant. He knew there was no hope at all for creation and humanity if no one could open that scroll. And he says he began to weep because all of his hope, all of his thoughts, everything that he had been destitute to see and understand now came crashing to an end because that scroll could never be opened. And the angel said, oh, there is one. Don't worry. Stop your crying. For there is one. He is the Lion of Judah. He is the root of David's house. He is the Messiah of the Old Testament. He is the one who has come, who was slain. He will open the scroll and break the seals. And I don't know if John was looking at the throne at that moment or if he was fixed on the angel and looking there. But you can imagine the confusion that had to take place in the next moments. Because what he was expecting to see was an incredible, mighty warrior, the Lion of Judah. In the minds uh, of many of us uh, in the, the time of reading, reading Narnia, to see Aslan as the great Lion there on the throne, standing. Or maybe it was to see Christ, his friend, who he had leaned his head against his breast and ate with him. And saw him resurrected from the dead. And saw his glorified body. And saw him raised and ascended into heaven in the clouds. And he hadn't seen him in a time. And he was looking forward to seeing Christ now in his house. Not in earth in a created fall place. But in his house. In all of his glory. And he turned around. And saw a lamb. He saw a sheep. Had been slain on the throne. You can imagine his confusion. It must have been, wait a second. How is that being? How is that ruler seated on that throne going to be able to open uh, the seals and the book of life? How is he going to be able to do that? He was questioning what kind of ruler is that that's on that throne? Is he the kind of ruler? How is it that he is the lion of Judah from the tribe of Judah, from the root of Jesse? He is the Davidic lineage. He is the king of kings come in messianic power. The one who has come. And yet he's slain like a lamb. Weak and crushed. Jesus is a shocking figure. Jesus is a figure that you have to deal with. And he will overturn your preconceived notion of what a Savior looks like and what a ruler is. And so today, in the few moments that we have together, I want to shake 
some foundations for you. I want to maybe strengthen some thoughts that you already have and, and to maybe expand for you your thought of this King that we serve. This King Jesus who brought together attributes which are not found in any other person ever. The little German man standing up to Loki was right. I will never bow the knee to a man like you. He said, there are no men like me. And he was right because Jesus was no man, no ordinary man. He was the God-man who came to rule and to set his people free and to bring them into life. Jonathan Edwards wrote, the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ consists largely in a conjunction of such actually diverse excellences as otherwise would have seemed to us utterly incompatible in the same subject. Jesus Christ brings together excellencies that would have seemed altogether impossible, but yet he brings them. Because if you've studied history and you know anything about sovereigns and leaders, even democratic appointed leadership, they fail to truly rule and to meet our deepest longings. So, the first thing that we're going to look at uh, this morning is this. It's our need of a king. It's our need for a king. I've said that we were designed to be ruled, but I want to give you biblical uh, foundation for that statement. Because if Christ came to meet our deepest longing to be ruled, we need to see in Scripture that we were designed to be ruled in that way. And that the current rulers and the current ones who are out there offering themselves as sovereign in our lives will only destroy us. That great passage in John 10. All they want to do is cheat, steal, buy, destroy, steal. But if you go to Genesis 2, verses 15 to 17, it says this. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Genesis 2.15 is commonly uh, and most often taken to mean that God's uh, eternal purpose for man was to cultivate and to work within the garden. That he was to work it and to steward it. I'd suggest, and I'm under the influence uh, of a man who I trust, Dr. John Currid, who's my Old Testament professor at uh, Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, now in Charlotte, and others who look at this, and we're going to go into the Hebrew for just a second, but stick with me. It's fascinating if you allow it to be so. Okay? It says here in the Hebrew that God put the man uh, into the garden. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden. That word put uh, is a Hebrew word, which is, which is nuach. And, and that's the word that means to rest. It's the root of the word Noah. Noah's name meant to rest. That he brought rest. And the verb tense, which I'm sure you're excited to hear, uh, is causative. Uh, so you can go look up what that means if you're an English major. But basically it means this. That the Lord God caused Adam to rest. In the garden. That the original condition of Adam and Eve within the garden was one of rest. That they were in the garden at rest. And then it says, and he put them in the garden 
and said that they were in the garden to work it and keep it, is what the ESV says. I believe it's the same in the NIV and the others. But the word work is the word abad, which is translated work here or tend or cultivate. But almost everywhere else, it is most often translated in the Old Testament as to serve or to worship. That Adam and Eve were placed in the garden to abad, to worship and to serve God in the state of rest. And to keep it, shamar is the Hebrew word for keep. Here it's taken, it's translated as to take care of. But again, elsewhere in other places, it's taken to keep as in the sense of keeping God's commandments. You would shamar God's law. You would keep God's law. And so it's interesting that God, in the original design of humanity, placed them at a position of rest for man before the fall didn't have to cultivate the ground. It says that all of the things were provided for him within the garden. All the food that he needed within the garden was there. That the curse upon the ground and the curse to have to tend the ground came in Genesis chapter 3. And so they were placed in the garden at rest. And they were placed there to worship God, to serve him, and to keep his commandments. Adam's responsibility and relationship to God was one of worship and obedience from the very get-go. Interesting, we're here at, at Hill Head Christian Academy, and it makes me think, uh, Tommy Lewis, who's the former uh, football coach and athletic director here, would have t-shirts made for all of the players on his football team. And he quoted this, he said, Abad and Shemar, Abad and Shemar, that you were designed to worship and to obey the king. That was your original design. You were designed, we were designed to worship and obey in a, in a sense of subjugation to God from the very beginning. And it says that we were designed to do that and that we were at peace with God until something happened. Until something happened. And Genesis 3 happened. God had told them, you don't get to eat of that tree. Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you can't eat of But everything else is yours. You're there in this perfect place of rest. But you need to obey me. Because if you don't obey me, there is going to be consequence. The consequence for disobedience to my sovereign rule is this. Death will enter. You will be destroyed. The relationship that you have with me will become fragmented. My image within you. So we have implanted within us the Imago Dei, the image of God. That we said last week, the image of God within us says that we have a loving desire as the Trinity did between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we have a desire to be in loving relationship with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and with other people. And now the image of God given to us uh, is that of we are to serve Him, obey Him as our righteous ruler and king. And look at what Satan did. Where did he come in and tempt Adam? He said, you want to be in subjection to him? He's keeping all of this from you. He's, he's got you duped. That he just doesn't want you to have that tree because he knows that when you eat that tree, you'll be equal with God. And he doesn't want anyone equal with him. And it touched somewhere in Adam and Eve. I've wrestled hours upon hours of my life with thinking, why did Adam was he thinking? What was it? Somewhere down it was this. I don't know. 
I do not want to be ruled. I want to be equal with God. And if I am equal with God, then he can't tell me what to do. And he ate of the tree along with his wife. And it says that their eyes were opened. And they saw good from evil. And they were naked and ashamed and hid themselves. It all came crashing down. Because they didn't want to be ruled. It says that they were then thrust out of the garden and the curse came and it said now your labor now all of your work all of the things that you do are gonna, they're going to be laborious now there's going to be conflict and tension now there's going to be a breakdown within your human relationships women why you're going to desire a position that is not yours and your husbands will lord it over you they'll no longer be gracious husbands they'll longer be gracious men who you can trust and understand but there's going to be tension and conflict between a man and a woman for the rest of your days and there's going to be conflict between your seed uh, and the seed of the serpent. And there's going to be conflict going out. And they saw it right there in their own playground, in their backyard. In the sandbox that they made, Cain killed Abel. And his blood stained the sand. And they were thrust out to wander into the wilderness, into the days, into the lands of Nod. And interestingly enough, it constantly, the story of the Old Testament is the story of a people who hated to be ruled. They hated to be ruled. They didn't want to be ruled. They set up rulers on their own. They wanted to do it all on their own. But the reality is this. We don't do well on our own. They had to be ruled. And they were going to be ruled by something. I've said to you before, this may be too simplistic. It may be too lower shelf for you. But here it is. An alcoholic is ruled by something. At least on the natural side, that person is ruled by a grape or a grain of wheat or barley or potato. It's been inverted. They're being ruled by something. Deeper down is a desire to medicate, to not hurt. And they want to rule themselves in that way. A person addicted to, to pornography is ruled by something. A person addicted to spending money or to other things is being ruled because there's a natural design to be ruled. And we look to be ruled. And we don't do well on our own. You can just go to Judges chapter 2. And it said after all, and all that the generation, excuse me, and all that generation also was gathered with their fathers. And there arose a generation after them who did not know the Lord. Or the work that he had done uh, for Israel. Interesting. They did not know the Lord as their ruler. Who had delivered them from Egypt. Who had taken them out of the house of slavery. Who had broken the bonds of slavery. And of sin and death over them. And led them into the promised land. Led them back into a sense of Eden. Into freedom. And ruled over them. This generation grew up and they didn't know him. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And they served the Baals. They worshipped other gods. And later in Judges it says, And in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We'll figure out a rule of law, and we will be ruled by something. You see it constantly around us. We have a desire to be ruled. We don't like being ruled. But it says in Romans, all of creation was subjected to futility, 
not willingly, but because of the one who subjected it to it. Romans 6. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace by no means? Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to life, which leads to righteousness? They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption, 2 Peter 2 says. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. You see, we're enslaved. So I guess the question that we have to pause here for just a moment and ask is this. Who or what are you currently serving that has you enslaved? Who or what are you currently serving that has you enslaved? And we think of idols and we think of gods uh, as little think trinkets that you put on a mantle place or you have in your backyard uh, and you go out and worship, but they're not. The gods that we serve, uh, these rulers that we have, look an awful lot like relationships. Your marriage may be ruling you, or your desire to be married, or your desire to be in a relationship. I've watched over the years so many wonderful believers who in their singleness as their years kept going on, no longer trusted the goodness of their sovereign king, who said, I'll provide for you even in your singleness. And their desire was to be married so desperately that it controlled and ruled them. And they married someone who didn't love the Lord. And they wallowed in that for so long. Or the desire at work. Is your work your God? Is that what's ruling you in your life? Are you serving and giving everything you possibly can to your work, hoping that the promises that that idol, that that God gives you, that then if you achieve this state, if you achieve this much money, if you get this much in sales, if you do this or get this position, if you got these letters behind your name, then, then you'll find peace and security. Then uh, you'll be free. Tim Keller says that child sacrifice is, a well, uh, is alive and well in America today. And he's not talking about abortion. He was talking to the folks in his church in Manhattan who worked on Wall Street and who worked on Park Avenue. And he said, if you're going to ascend to the heights of your corporation, then you will have to sacrifice something to that God. And it will be your family and it will be your children. Because you will not make it to that level. And you will not succeed in the eyes of that institution if you don't sacrifice something to it. What are you, what are you being ruled by? What's ruling you? What is driving you that you have to have? I look around on campuses today, and I was Greek. I was in a fraternity, and so I don't stand up here and bash the Greek system just to bash it. But what a horrible system it has morphed into. On many of the southern universities, they like to do something special. They'll invite all the girls uh, to come for a week earlier than every other undergraduate uh, to come to the campus. And so that the girls get to parade themselves out in front of all of the sororities. All of these snot-nosed little girls with their little letters written on their sweatshirts get to judge and to say, you can be a part of us and you can't be a part of us. You look good enough to be a part of us. Your family has enough money to be a part of us. Yours doesn't. And therefore, and these girls go and you wonder why these girls do it. I think I know why. They're being ruled. Because they think if they have a couple of Greek letters on the front of their sweatshirt that then, then they'll have life. Then they'll have 
And so many of them find just a desperate sense of loss, even if they get the sweatshirt. What are you being ruled by? What's driving you? Parents, is it your kids? Are they ruling your life? You're so afraid of them that you're serving them to such a need? Kids, your parents? We're being ruled. You're being ruled. You just need to ask what you're being ruled by or who is ruling you that time. And if you come and you say, I know, I see that I'm being ruled in this way. This relationship I'm in bondage to, I'm in subjugation to this thing, but I don't want to be anymore. How am I going to get loose from it? How am I going to get out from it? What you have to do is you have to turn your allegiance and your attention to another ruler and allow that ruler, as we said, to come in and to then fight on your behalf and to free you from the bondage of those things. And that as you come under his rule, you'll find freedom in your life. It's an interesting oxymoron almost within the scriptures. That in order to find freedom, you have to become a slave of Christ. And in order to find the life and to live the life you were designed to live and become the person that you were designed to be and to live in a flourishing shalom, peace, you have to come and serve another one. So we're going to look at this surprising king that we serve. The surprising king that we serve. He is not what you expected. He is not the king that you think you need. The king you think you need uh, looks an awful lot like Hollywood. It looks an awful lot like the first king of Israel, King Saul. He was tall, broad shoulders. He had a big spear and a huge shield. He was a man's man. And the people of Israel said, we want him to be the king. And God said, you really don't want a human king. I'm your king. Let me rule you. Be ruled by me. We want Saul. And they gave him, they gave him Saul. Saul abused him. And he was coward. He would sacrifice the Israelites on the field of battle and he himself would stay back in his tent and not go out. He wouldn't stand on his horse and unfurl his banner and ride out onto the field to take on Goliath. He wouldn't do that. But the king we think we want is most often not the king that we need. See, the king that we need looks an awful lot like a scrawny little brother <coughs> who came to see his brothers on the field of battle, King David, who he went out onto the field of battle. And he took on Goliath. And he slayed Goliath. And killed him. In his weakness, unarmed, from not good bloodlines. And he went out and did it. Because you see, the king we need is this King Jesus, who came from the line of David. Interesting. <clears throat> you know the story of David, <clears throat> the story of David and Goliath isn't a story, parents, for you to tell your kids to go stand up to the bully on the playground. And if you stand up to the bully on the playground, then at the end of the day you'll win. You know what you're going to get when your kid comes home? A kid with a black eye and a bloody nose. And the bully's still the bully. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story is put your trust in the true David who's going to come and he's going to defeat your true Goliath's sin and death itself. And that when he defeats him on the field of battle, then you, who are hiding in the caves and hiding behind the rocks, you get to come out and enjoy all the spoils of war because of the one king who truly fought on your behalf and defeated all of your, and subdued all of your enemies in his name. That's the, that's the story of David and Parents to teach your children. And so we have this surprising king 
He's different from what we think we need. I need to move pretty quickly. First, we see that this king that we serve, we saw him as the lamb slain in Revelation. He has a meekness to him. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor over Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because it was the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, each betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for him in the end. This surprising king that we serve is one of lowliness. He was born in weakness. He was born the illegitimate child of a poor couple from a little town in a nondescript country in a nondescript time in the history of the world. And he came, he was born in a cattle stand and placed in a manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes, exposed to all the elements. And by the way, not to ruin a wonderful Christmas song, he cried. He wept. He made sounds. And he was subjected to the natural order of growing up. We don't know much about those first 30 years of his life. But he grew up just like the rest of us. He had to deal with bullies. He had to deal with other people. He had to deal with life. And he came in this lowliness. And he was born in weakness. He was born and he was so strong that he said, I am so strong. And I am so mighty that I am able to lay aside all the glories of heaven itself to come and be born in a manger on your behalf in human likeness so that I can redeem you. I am that strong and I am that powerful that I'm willing to lay aside all these excellencies and come to live among you and then ultimately to die. I am so strong that I will place my head on the block where yours was supposed to be. John Sott, the great Anglican pastor and theologian, said, as the essence of sin is us substituting ourselves for God, so the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. It's what makes Jesus that surprising king that we serve. And his lowliness, and his meekness, and his tenderness, that he was like us and human. But then we also see his highness, his majesty, and his royalty. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream, they went home by another way. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is descended from the lineage of David, the kingly line of Israel. Wise men worshipped him. Shepherds worshipped him. Angels worshipped him. He was majestic. He came into this world that he could speak to the, to the sea and it was calm. He could say to the wind, stop it. He could say to death, leave. And leprosy be vanished. He could say to the one who had no voice, speak. And the one who couldn't walk, walk and dance. 
He could say to the evil one, I'm not to speak to you. All the way back in Genesis, it says that there will be two seeds. The seed of the serpent and enmity will be put between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And the seed of the serpent will bruise him on the heel, but the seed of the woman will crush his head. Satan bruised the heel of Christ on the cross. But Christ, through the resurrection, crushed the head of the seed of the serpent. He said, I am majestic, and I am strong, and I am not to be messed with. I am not to be trivialized in your American democracy and all that you do. You see, this kingdom we serve is surprising, bringing these things together. And finally this. This king that we serve brings us a hope. And here's the hope that we have in this king. What we saw in Revelation 5, the throne is occupied. There's someone seated on the throne. I always love it now when Congress is trying to get a few things passed. What do they call this Congress that we have for the next few weeks? Lingo. President Obama won't be president in two years because another president in the cycle will come. And for a season there, it'll be called a lame duck ruler. We do not have a lame duck king seated on the throne. He is the king who rules with full authority and power and might. And it says that all of creation kneels before him and worships him and praises him. This is that king. So what are we going to do with him? This king... He provides with us, for us that the throne is occupied and that in Him we can be like Him. We can have a servant's heart and yet a lion's heart. We can have greatness and meekness brought together. Blaise Pascal, the wonderful French mathematician and theologian and philosopher, said what he saw in Christianity that drew him to him was the understanding that a man within Christ <clears throat> The great wretchedness of the man and the greatness of the man brought together. Because Christ can bring these things together. Great kingliness will come into your life if you're willing to make him king. If you're willing to be ruled. In his first advent, Jesus came meek and lowly, born in a manger and riding on a donkey's colt. The next time he's coming, riding on a cloud. The first time he came, he came to be torn apart on a cross. The next time he comes, he comes to tear apart all that is evil and all who have aligned themselves with evil. So will you treat him as a king? Tim Keller, in a sermon, wrote these words, or spoke these words, about Christ our king. He said, treat him as a king. Obey him. Treat him as a king. Do whatever he says, whether you like it or not. Trust him. Treat him as a king. Accept what he sends into your life, whether you understand it or not. Rely on him. Treat him as a king. Don't say you believe in Jesus, but gain your self-worth, your career, your marriage, your family, or your friends. And expect great things from him. Treat him as a king, especially in prayer. John Newton wrote these great words. Thou art, becoming, thou art coming to a king. Great petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such. None 
can ever ask too much. He's your king. And the question that we're going to deal with today, and we're going to go a little long, so go ahead and change your body clock for a moment. This king is represented in this table. He said, I'm the kind of king who's going to die for my people. I'm the kind of king who will live for my people and will rule for my people. So let's come to the table.